MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Hey everyone, welcome to Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. All right, AG, in the DC case, we have a trial date set by Judge Chutkin of March 4th, 2026. No, I'm just kidding. It's 2024. <laughs> 2024. Along with a full trial schedule. Uh, there's also reporting that the prosecutors on Jack Smith's team were asking questions about Rudy Giuliani's drinking and level of inebriation while advising Trump leading up to the events on January 6th. And we have some more information on Republican efforts to defund the special counsel. Oh, they never stop. They 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 started doing this back in the Mueller days, and they haven't shut up about it. Uh, we also have the curious case of Harrison Floyd, and you and I have spoken uh, at length offline about this, and that's just an interesting, weird story. But it what what it has unveiled, and what's pertinent to the Jack Smith investigation, is that we now know that Jack Smith was investigating the intimidation of Ruby Freeman in Georgia, or at least trying to subpoena Harrison Floyd for whatever reason, I'm assuming it's the Ruby Freeman stuff, in his um, investigation into January 6th, not just, you know, not just down in Georgia. And then in Florida, we have a speedy trial invocation from Carlos de Oliveira. That's weird. We'll talk about that. Yep. Went way under the radar. Nobody really reported on this. Um, it got dug up by a listener who sent it to me and said, "Did you see this?" Um, <laughs> nice, the MSW Nation at work. I love it. Yes, our sleuths hard at work. Uh, and we have seven redacted search warrants uh, released with focus on Walt Nauta. And going back to DC, um, let's let's start there, Andy. I was in Judge Chutkin's courtroom this past Monday for the trial date hearing. That uh, is was, amazing. I'm so glad you went in there, and I can't wait to hear all the uh, things that you saw. I almost didn't make it in because I was carrying my phone out, like out my, and they're like, "Ma'am, ma'am, step aside, <laughs> out of line, get out of line right now." And they like looked at my photo roll to make sure I hadn't taken any oh, photos. Oh no way! <laughs> That's the super courthouse. paranoid. I'm even very familiar with uh, paranoid uh, court officers. They definitely, you know, don't want you taking the phones in there or the guns. Mm-hmm. In my case, that was always a bigger problem. Ah. Uh. But yeah, uh, and, yeah. and then when I sat down, I went, I was like, "Hey, can I go sit next to my friend Harry Dunn?" They're like, "Ma'am, just sit where you are." They were like, "Really?" Oof. Like, already done with me. Uh, I should have worn like long sleeves, maybe a blazer. Should have looked more professional, I guess. Maybe the nose ring. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I I got into the courtroom, and uh, I'll paint the picture for you. On the left is the prosecution table. Defense table was on the right as you face the bench. Uh, the prosecutor's table. Uh, had Molly Gaston and John Wyndham. Now we know John Wyndham was appointed to investigate the tippy top of the coup way back in November yep. of 2021. I know all of the pundits on TV want to say that it that they didn't start investigating until April or May of the next year or until after the hearings happened for the January 6th commission in June of 2022. But he was appointed to investigate Trump in November of 2021. And you'll remember he tried to issue subpoenas yeah. for the Willard, fraudulent electors, uh, Clark, Perry. He's the guy that had to struggle with a lackluster FBI response out of the out of Eastman. the Washington field office, and had to scrape up some uh, IG investigators and postal <laughs> dudes to do the do his work for him. Which is there's a story yeah. to be told there. I can't wait till we get to the bottom of that. Yeah, and we have an episode in the past called the uh, Search Warrant Two Step, where we were trying to figure out why on earth the Inspector General was confiscating these phones. Well, now we know. It's because Dan Tuono at the Washington Field Office, the FBI, was refusing to approve those search warrants and subpoenas. So uh, that Wyndham was there at the table. He is the lead prosecutor on this particular case. Jack Smith sat behind them in the gallery, and he was flanked, Andy, by six security guards. Wow. Six. Now, Harry Dunn was one row behind Jack Smith, and I'm behind the defense table, which uh, had John Lauro and Todd Blanche. Mm-hmm. I was behind them 
diagonally behind Jack Smith. I had a direct line of sight to Jack Smith. So I, I, I kept my eye on him. He mostly just stroked his beard um, <laughs> and was the, the whole time. Very pensive. Was he wearing the robe with the purple stripe on it? <laughs> he should just wear I, that everywhere. I feel like he should just roll in with that. Like, I'm here. <laughs> you know what would be great is if he had a t-shirt with that printed on it. So it's yeah. not even the robe, but Can like I, a tuxedo the, shirt. Big, yeah, the tux shirts. <laughs> you got there before me. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, now now I want to want one of those shirts. Hey, all I know is Halloween is coming. I know what I'm gonna be. <laughs> oh, that's so funny! Grow the beard. There you go. Um, and so uh, that that's where I was situated. I was watching him the whole time. Now at the break, uh, we did stand up. He was facing Jack Smith. Was facing the gallery, facing us, and away from the bench. And and I looked at him. We we made eye contact, like for a minute and then he gave me like the sup like the head <laughs> the head nod he's like how are you doing <laughs> what's up and uh you know six security guards around him and i was like uh, you know and I, when that happened I, I told everybody about it they were like oh he knows who you are and i'm like probably his security does and was trying to keep me away from him because i'm the crazy lady with the podcast just about him i have Mueller tattooed on my arm so like he, they were probably like all right she's a little <laughs> She's on our side, but a little over the top, we think. You should have given him like the heart hands, you know, the fingers and the heart. (laughs) Well, I certainly couldn't take a selfie with him because I would have been kicked right out of that courtroom. Um, Now, the judge came and gave some opening remarks, including neither proposed trial date, which was January 2nd of 2024 by the DOJ and April 2026 by the defense. Neither were appropriate. She reminded the parties that the right to a speedy trial doesn't only belong to the defendant. It also belongs to the public. And that the longer it takes to go to trial, the more chances of tainting a jury pool, especially from inflammatory posts by the president, former president, and the danger of of memories fading, right? This is why when people asked Bob Mueller, if you couldn't indict Trump, why did you investigate? And his his answer was to get the the facts and the information in the testimony while they were still fresh in the mind's of of the witnesses that always stood out to me and so she brought that up as well uh she stated that mr trump she wouldn't call him president trump and mr trump's day job has no bearing on the court or its schedule and it wouldn't for any other defendant she even used an example saying like let's say i was uh there was a criminal defendant who was a professional athlete uh you know i would not take she she goes i would not take her schedule into consider i was like her (laughs) nice all right Women rule the world. You know, I love both of those points. The piece about the public having an interest in a speedy trial is uh, so important and and I think over or under-focused on. And this kind of punching through this, uh, this myth of like, oh, because he's chosen to run for president, he should get a completely different treatment from the system. That is a, that is, that does, it does not work that way. It should not ever work that way. And I'm glad to see it's not going to work that way in her court. Yeah, she she was basically saying, look, everybody's got shit to do. You're not special. (laughs) You're not the first person in here with a day job. Thank you. Uh, And she first then she started to address the arguments. And and the first thing she touched on, which is something we spoke at length about, was this uh, myth that Title 18 U.S. Code 371 cases take an average of twenty nine and a half months, twenty nine point four months to complete. Um, she brought up the fact that this was misleading. She called it misleading. She said that that is a number that reflects from uh, commencement and indictment through sentencing, not to the beginning of trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also um, brought up the fact that, um, you know, I mean, that wasn't the only consideration. She said the defense only used cases from 2021 and 2022, which was a handful of cases, 22 cases, and they were all impacted by COVID backlogs. Right. She also pointed out that the defense used cases with multiple defendants, five to 17 co-defendants, cases with pretrial detention hearings, some very, you know, long pretrial detention hearings. Many of these had superseding indictments and plea negotiations, lengthy plea negotiations. She's like, none of that is true here and reminded everyone that this is one defendant and four counts. And that is so important because that, I think, was Jack Smith's gambit of having a simple indictment paying off. Totally, totally agree with you. And as proof, you see what's happening down in Georgia. 
mm-hmm. the chaos that comes along with a 19 defendant case. It's unavoidable. It's not, I'm not throwing a rock at Fonnie Willis, but she made the decision that she wants to put on this incredibly broad case against all this, this broad scope of people. This is the baggage that comes along with that. Some speedy trial, some are delays, federal removal, this, that, and the other thing. So um, I think Jack Smith very intentionally chose to avoid all that and kept it clean and tight on the person who's most responsible, stayed away from things like the insurrection charge that would might bog down, you know, the prosecution and in, in uh, never-ending arguments about First Amendment rights and everything else. And uh, we're seeing that pay off now, even with the scheduling order. Yeah. And I wanted to take a minute here to discuss with you. Uh, a lot of folks seem to be very upset that none of his co-conspirators have been indicted None of the people in Congress have been indicted. No one else has been indicted. Steve uh, or uh, um, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon. None of these other people have been indicted for January 6th by the Department of Justice. And I wanted to raise the possibility that by doing that, you could complicate this case, much like the uh, Fulton County case is complicated. Because if you start indicting his co-conspirators, they could start filing to consolidate with the Donald Trump case and adding themselves as defendants to the Donald Trump case. Um, and and therefore pushing it back, making it more complex or trying to file motions about how to be different or, you know, the other things that would have to be considered. It is very feasible. And you and I have spoken about this in previous episodes. And I think a lot of people are now starting to pick up that conversation and, and roll with it. Uh, I could see a, a scenario in which Jack Smith it will indict other people, but not until after this case is over. Uh, he's got plenty of time on his side to do that. There's no election consideration for anybody else. Uh, and the statute of limitations wouldn't be up until 2025, 2026. So That's right. I, I would personally, because this is such a huge factor, the simplicity of this case is such a huge factor in, in, in getting this done quickly, getting it done before even the Republican National Convention, that he would try to indict anybody else. And, and I would support that decision. I mean, what, I, I know he doesn't call me. And I, I mean, he looked at me in the courtroom, but I don't think he was like <laughs> looking for my, for my permission to not indict anybody else until after this is done. But I'd be happy to wait until it was. I, I see it the same way that you do. I, you know, when you are, when you're planning a prosecution of either an individual or a group of individuals, you there's a million things to be considered. And, and you know, everything from strength of the evidence to uh, your cooperators and how good or bad they might be and other proceedings going on at the same time and timing, all kinds of things. It seems to me that in this, in bringing this case the way they did, uh, Smith's team prioritized their number one priority uh, priority was getting this case brought in time so that it could be tried in time to be finished before the election. And the best way to do that was keeping it clean on one defendant, the guy who, the only defendant, uh, potential defendant for whom the election had any relevance. So all of those other people, but now there are downsides to that, right? If you plan to go back and indict some of these uh, currently uh, unindicted co-conspirators at a later date, they are now going to get a preview of the evidence against them. They may even get to see the evidence. You know, they, if there are violations in the protective orders, they might <laughs> see evidence from, from the Trump's attorneys about, you know, different things that uh, the prosecutors have against them. Those are all calculated risks that the team is prepared to take in an effort to focus on the top priority, which is getting this case against Trump in court, heard and resolved before the election. And, you know, how can you argue with that prioritization? That is the most important thing right now, to give people the opportunity to hear this thing, to hear how the case comes out, to hear what the evidence is, and to hear the decision of the jury before they have to go into the voting booth and make a decision for themselves. So, yeah, and I think that if you're taking any shelter or comfort as an unindicted co-conspirator from the fact that you haven't been indicted yet, you're kidding yourself because yeah. this thing could go on for years. He could be rolling up lower and lower people in follow-on prosecution after follow-on prosecution for years. Yeah. And it's the same with like the wire fraud stuff. Like he could bring superseding indictments, Absolutely. but you're going to tack those onto this case and you're going to make, you could run the risk of extending it uh, into and or past the election. Um, those things can go later. 
I really do think. Hey, Trump, um, now, Trump could get indicted for more stuff later, right? Right, Whether that's gets, what I mean, like that wire fraud. Right. And, uh, Acquitted know. or convicted on these charges, he could get hit with other arguably less important charges later. Um, but again, Or it's, bigger charges. He could be charged with seditious conspiracy or incitation of a riot. I mean, you know, the things separate from the specific behaviors outlined in this case. But I think maybe because they use the riot... Uh, as part of this um, conspiracy against rights, that that's probably off the table, like a double jeopardy sitch. But, you know, he, he there's all sorts of uh, considerations that I think, I honestly think Jack Smith is going to be waiting. So if, if people are waiting for these superseding indictments for either Donald Trump or his co-conspirators or anybody else uh, in the periphery of these crimes, you might be waiting a while. And I think that that would be for, for a good reason. I just wanted yep. to bring that up. I agree. All right, then they addressed the volume of discovery, right? And it was 11.3 million documents. Now it's up to 12.8 million pages, pages, not documents. Mm -hmm. And Molly Gaston argued that even though there's 12.8 million pages, 61% are things that are public, that Donald Trump has had access to, or that Donald Trump himself created. Uh, So, you know, 61%. Now, and of the remaining, a lot of it is duplicative. She argued... um, that the DOJ has gone to considerable lengths to organize this discovery more than probably any other defendant in history, including coding and filing and Bates numbers in groups and, you know, uh, annotations on things. They have about 45,000 key documents for the trial, and they put it in an annotated version of the indictment to provide a roadmap to discovery. They have timestamps on relevant surveillance footage. Um, And by the way, when she was describing the great lengths and the judge acknowledged the great lengths that they went to to organize this discovery for the defense, that's the only time I saw Jack Smith react. And he just nodded his head twice. Um, so, so I thought that was interesting. It's really interesting. And I have to say, I mean, to be perfectly fair, I don't. I think that this is their weakest argument in this whole back and forth. And here's why. The 12 million pages is 12 million pages. Um I don't think that Trump's argument that the that the size of the discovery is a reason to delay the trial. I, I don't or agree that they with have that. to look at it page by page. Right, right? but yeah. but some of Molly Gaston's reasonings here kind of falls a little bit on deaf ears. If you've been through this before, no matter who you are and how well the prosecution gives you a roadmap and tells you what's most important, you still have to look through all of it. You're never going to be completely comfortable letting the prosecution tell you what documents that you should base your defense on, right? You're always going to have to go through that stuff to see. There could be little Easter eggs hidden in there that are um, exculpatory or you know could be beneficial to you in cross-examining the government's witnesses or whatever. Um, the other argument that like 61% are things that were public or created by Trump. Yes, but he didn't really have any obligation to be reviewing that stuff or preparing his defense before the case was brought. Right. So you still have to go back and analyze all the, analyze all those things in the context of this case and the things he's been charged with. So I don't know that those arguments are that persuasive. However, 12 million pages, cases that run through 12 million pages of documents happen every day in this country, in federal court. And there are immense resources available to defendants who have resources. And this defendant has resources. So he can get this done if he's got to hire more lawyers or hire e-discovery companies to help him sort it out, uh, hire more paralegals, whatever. He can do that. uh, And we can still get this trial done on time. Yeah, and that's why uh, Judge Chutkin, in in her response, was she hammered home on the not necessarily the, you know, any of the other arguments that Molly Gaston made, but the argument that there are these are searchable by keyword, and we have whole industries now, a whole cottage industry of of businesses that do this for a living. In fact, Mr. Trump, you just spent three hundred fifty grand so Rudy could do this. That's right. Through t- through Trust Point, she didn't bring that up, but yeah, we were all thinking it. Um, so that was her main reason, her main reasoning for this trial date and, and why the Department of Justice's January trial date was not appropriate. So, you know, I think I think that that was a very interesting. Um, she also argued a lot of discovery is duplicative. Um, she gave an example that um, all of the testimony is annotated with um, exhibits, evidence exhibits, mm-hmm. and those evidence exhibits are also submitted separately. So those are all duplicates. Um, she notes that the 3.1 million Secret Service emails, that accounts for like 20% of this That's whole amazing. discovery. And a lot of that is also uh, duplicative. 
Um, and we also learned through this uh, process that there are roughly, Andy, 250 potential witnesses, wow. which is quite a bit. Uh, then uh, Laro got up and he was yelly and <laughs> ar- raising his voice, arguing Sixth Amendment rights. You can't do this to my client. Um, and so, so much so, he was so yelly that the judge asked him to take the temperature down twice. <laughs> uh, he continually brought up Judge Chutkin's experience as a criminal defense lawyer saying, you know, you're, you know me, you know what I'm trying to do. You understand. And he, he did that several, multiple times. He, he kept referring to Trump as President Trump. One time accidentally referred to him as Mr. Trump and corrected himself. Uh, That's I'm to make President sure he doesn't Trump. get fired. A couple, <laughs> a couple of Mr. Trumps, I mean, he might find himself out of a gig. Yep. And he wasn't able to articulate why exactly a 2026 trial date was necessary, like with math or anything. Uh, and so the judge said that this isn't going to trial in 2026 and uh, that the indictment of Trump shouldn't have come as a surprise to you. That's what she said. It's not like surprise, you're indicted. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. What? Are you kidding? Yeah. I got indicted for what? <laughs> and he brought up uh, potential, uh, all these potential pretrial motions he plans to file, including selective prosecution, executive immunity, First Amendment considerations, Rule 17 subpoenas. Um, and he said, these are all novel legal arguments, Your Honor. Novel, novel legal. These are brand new. No one's ever done these before. And that's when Molly Gaston said, these are not novel. 1512 and 371, we've had, we have tons of cases. It's not new. Selective prosecution, as she goes, especially in D.C., is not new. This has been argued to death. Executive immunity, not new. We've been doing this for a while. Uh, the First Amendment certainly isn't new. <laughs> Yeah. You know, just all sorts of, she's like, none of this is novel. It's a one, it's one guy, it's four, four counts. And then the SEPA considerations, just as you and I had predicted, and we, we talked to Brian Greer about this, those can be run in parallel. There's only about 300 pages of classified information in this case that will head over in discovery, and none of it is part of their uh, case in chief, which means they're not going to be using it in their presentation of the prosecution. Right. They may need it to rebut a uh, defense or just for you to have. Um, and the only argument there was that uh, Molly Gaston wanted a 30-day th- um, deadline to file Section 4 SEPA uh, motions after Todd Blanche got his full clearance. He, he's about to get it. He might have it now. It could be any day. And um, Blanche got up and argued that he wanted to wait for that 30 days to clock to start ticking until after... Lauro got his full clearance and he hasn't even, I don't think, applied for an interim one. So the judge was like, no, you, you, you can look at the 300 documents. They're not being used in the case in chief. And an interim security clearance um, that he should have by then, Lauro should have by then, is enough for you to discuss these documents with him. Uh, so she, she turned that down and, and granted the DOJ that 30-day thing and said it can, it can all go in parallel. And then... That's when Chuck can said, okay, March 4th. And we all sort of in the courtroom were like, yeah, because we guessed. That's what, that's what our guess was. Everybody was guessing March. Was any woo, woo, hands in the yeah. air? Or no, it was more uh, There was like an sedate. open the fridge or like a, you know, a little yeah, fist pump. Go. But nobody made any sounds because you don't do that. No. I was already like on the edge of being kicked <laughs> out of the courtroom. You knew you were going to be the first one out if things weren't crazy. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and so then Laro got up and went on the record saying, this infringes on my client's Sixth Amendment rights. This is unconscionable. You know better. You're a defense attorney formerly. You should know. Blah, blah, blah. I just want to go on the record so he can appeal later, you know. Sure. But the thing was, he invoked something called the Scottsboro case. And Judge Chutkin specifically called him out for this. This is a 1930s case about nine black men who were indicted uh, for raping a white woman. And they were indicted, arraigned, and went to trial within six days. And they didn't get representation, you know, like anything. And she was aghast that Donald Trump would compare his case and his prosecution here to that of the Scottsboro boys because six days and no resources. She was, she brought that specifically up and said, you know, basically GTFO my courtroom with that. Um, she was very upset by that. I cannot 
for the life of me, figure out what they're trying to accomplish. It, it almost seems as if they figure, you know what? She's not going to like us. So let's just go down in the biggest ball of flames that we can possibly <laughs> put together. You know, it started with the, the, or the, uh, the first appearance where he claimed I can't possibly represent my client sufficiently. And he's going to have a motion for insufficient assistance, uh, insufficient assistance of counsel. Then they come in with the 2026 trial date request, which is on its face ridiculous. I don't care how big of a defense attorney you are. There was, you know, he couldn't even specifically defend, uh, that date. And now this, the Scottsboro reference, like, anyone in their right mind would know like that is not going to land well with this judge. Why are you trying so hard to piss her off for no reason? I feel like, um, there's gotta be a strategy behind this, but I can't for the life of me imagine what it is. No. Yeah. It's because we're not weird. Um, so <laughs> I guess not weird enough. We can't, we can't figure out what the, why you would do that in this particular case. But you, you have that, so much to lose as a litigant if you piss the judge off right at the beginning. And it comes down to every little motion. Every time you object to a piece of testimony in the middle of trial, whether or not that objection gets sustained or dismissed, all, oftentimes comes down to the way that the judge perceives you and the reasonableness of, of your arguments historically. And, you know... So by kind of heaving your credibility out the door on day one, you just automatically put yourself in kind of on a losing footing in ways that can really matter later on. Uh, most mm. attorneys go out of their way to try to develop some sort of relationship, respect, whatever with the judge, uh, but not the this only team. Th the only thing I could think of is that they're pissing her off to get her to do something that they can later appeal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like he's been trying to poke her to get a, to get her to issue a gag order. I'm like, he's there. She's not going to issue gonna a gag that, order. No. And, uh, and so maybe they're just poking her to try to get her to do something that's, I don't know, that they can yeah. appeal later. That's yeah. the only thing I can think of. Could uh, be. Could be. Stupid. We'll see. See how that's going to go for them. Anyway, it was really, really interesting being inside that courtroom. And I'm glad that I got the opportunity to everybody who was in line, by the way, and the public got to go into the courtroom and, and watch it. I think it's awesome. If you live in the area or you're in the area, you get a chance to go to the D.C. courthouse, head down and, uh, you know, sit in on a court hearing. Don't bring your phone um, <laughs> and uh, or keep it in your purse or your pocket. Um, or go see a naturalization ceremony. I've heard those are very moving, uh, but yeah. it, it's really interesting to see that the ju the judiciary in 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 motion. Yeah, totally agree. And in this case, look, it's history. One way or another, like it or don't, it is history making. And to be able to see it one day as it's happening, um, that'd be something you'd never forget. Yeah, truly, I might might show up in March, but I think the lines might be a little bit longer. A little longer, yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, everybody, we have more to get to. Stick around. We're going to talk about Rudy and his drinking habits after this quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, next up from Rolling Stone, Special Counsel Jack Smith's office has repeatedly grilled witnesses about Rudy Giuliani's drinking on and after Election Day, investigating whether Donald Trump was knowingly relying on an inebriated attorney while trying to overturn a presidential election. So in their questioning of multiple witnesses, Smith's team of federal investigators have asked questions about how seemingly intoxicated Giuliani was during the weeks he was giving Trump advice on how to cling to power. According to a source who's been in the room with Smith's team, one witness's attorney and a third person familiar with the matter. So that's three sources on this line of questioning. Yeah. Yeah. They go on to say the special counsel's team has also asked these witnesses if Trump had ever gossiped with them about Giuliani's drinking habits and if Trump had ever claimed Giuliani's drinking impacted his decision making or judgment. Federal investigators have inquired about whether the then president was warned, including after election night on 2020, about Giuliani's allegedly excessive drinking. They've also asked certain witnesses if Trump was told that the former New York mayor was giving him post-election legal and strategic advice while drunk. Oh. Now, when I first read this, everybody's take on this, including the, um, uh, the, the folks at Rolling Stone, is that they're trying to establish that Trump knew he was taking advice from an inebriated person. My first thought was that they were trying to establish a defense against Trump saying, hey, he told me this was legal. He was drunk. I didn't know he was drunk. And now they're trying to prove that he knew and that everybody knew he was drunk. We, we saw Jason Miller testify to the January 6th committee and others that, that Rudy had been drinking. Uh, but, you know, Jason Miller specifically said, I do not know if he, you know, if he spoke to Trump in that condition or whatever mm-hmm. or advised Trump in that condition. So it felt like a it felt like a prepping for a defense to me, but you know something that would be used in response to something. I don't know. What do you think? Do you do you think it could be characterized as they would come out come out of the gate saying he was taking advice from drunk people and knew it? I, I tend to see it um, more from your perspective, but but let's just let's just start at the beginning here. There is no legal defense. Sorry, my attorney was drunk. Therefore, I'm not responsible for these crimes. That's not a legal defense in the United States of America. If it was, even more lawyers would be drunk all the time. So I'm I really, this whole thing is very strange to me. They wouldn't be asking these questions unless they had some very specific concern about it and how Giuliani's possible drunkenness in these key moments might impact their case. My sense is more like yours, like somehow it's come to their attention. They may have, may have had a witness, let's, I'm, I'm totally making this up for the, for the sake of argument, but let's say a witness comes in and says, well, Trump told me once he can't be responsible for anything that, that Giuliani told him because he knows Giuliani was drunk all the time, right? So, If you're thinking that maybe the defense puts on a witness like that to lay this little bomb out there in front of the jury to try to go for jury sympathy or something, then you would want to drill down on it and find out if other people had ever seen or heard Trump acknowledge the fact that Giuliani was drunk a lot. Because then you could say, well, it doesn't matter because you knew he was drunk, you took his advice anyway. So it, it's almost like a rebuttal line of questioning, right? Yeah, or like even a Rudy defense. Like, 
I can't be held liable for entering into a criminal enterprise when I'm inebriated, you know, like some sort of contract thing, you know, how you can't. It's so absurd. That that doesn't work on any level for any offense. Like if you <laughs> if you I was allowed drunk, your so you can't arrest me for drunk driving. Right. I couldn't I, have possibly right. made a a, a, well, a a good decision about whether or not to get behind the wheel. So I'm immune. How was from I your supposed DUI? to not know not to dr- drive after I'd had twelve beers? I'd had twelve how, beers for God's how sakes. How was I supposed to know you're not supposed to coo? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean. Oh my gosh. I'm just I, trying to figure it out. You're I, like, what could it possibly be? Yeah, sometimes maybe it just came up and they want to follow it thoroughly yeah, to the end yeah. so that they have all the information in case it pops up at trial and they have they have Or maybe it was just fun to ask the questions. I don't <laughs> know. Multiple you know, witnesses. they're just curious. They're like, come on, could this be a real thing? Yeah. Um I don't think that uh I don't think that there's anything to this substantively. There's no but for my besotted attorney, I wouldn't have violated any laws defense. So, yeah, I don't know how this one's going to play out. I like but for my besotted attorney. I think that's a good episode title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So um, now the curious case of Harrison Floyd. Mm-hmm. You and I have spoken about this a little bit. He's he's one of the uh, 19 defendants down in Georgia. He surrendered on Friday uh, like he was supposed to. Uh, But he was remanded. He was kept in jail uh, until the following week at the the Rice Street Jail in Fulton County. Um, And he when he got out, you know, Steve Bannon helped him raise a bunch of money to make his bond and get out. When he got out, he went on the Steve Bannon show and said, I'm the only one they held behind because I'm the black guy. Uh, and then Fonnie Willis um, released an audio tape of her phone call to him on Friday when he surrendered, offering him a consent bond that he refused. So he stayed in jail that weekend because of himself uh, and his refusal uh, to accept a consent bond. Uh, and so, but then this other whole thing about uh, he earlier this year he was arrested. A warrant, an affidavit went in, warrant out for his arrest, because he assaulted FBI agents who were serving him a federal grand jury subpoena in Jack Smith's investigation. So the story here and how this connects to Jack Smith is just that. We didn't know until right now that Jack Smith was investigating the Ruby Freeman intimidation, assuming that that's what they were subpoenaing right. him about. Who knows? Maybe it could have been something else. Uh, but but that is something that Jack Smith has been investigating for quite some time that we had no idea about. Again, just goes to the secrecy of of the grand jury. And we also don't know if uh, this uh, Harrison Floyd person testified before the federal grand jury. I'm assuming he did or he'd be in more trouble. Uh, but his docket has been kind of blank uh, on that particular arrest for the last few months, there's been no indictment that we've seen. There's been no preliminary hearing. There's been no motion to delay a preliminary hearing pending plea negotiations. We haven't really seen anything. Uh, and so, you know, could he be cooperating or did they just not go after the charges because they were like, he's got plenty of other stuff going on. I like, I, we just don't know what's happening with that case. Yeah, so the interaction with the FBI agents uh, allegedly occurred in uh, outside of his residence in Maryland. Um, they they had been there, I think, once before, and they'd had some kind of aggressive interaction with him. He wouldn't talk to them or something. I don't, <clears throat> not not productive. They came back with a subpoena. They saw him outside the residence. They kind of followed. They were they. He argued with them. Refused to take the subpoena. I think they followed him up a flight of stairs in front of his uh, door to his townhouse or something. And then when he opened the door and, w- and went in, they threw the piece of paper in the door. So they turned around and left, and he then came out of his house all angry and screaming and yelling and shoved one of them, got physical with at least one of the agents. They leave. He then called 911 and reported an assault. I mean, it's just a whole kind of confusing, chaotic thing. So it looks like the... Uh, the agents got a warrant for him, and I would guess the warrant was based on a complaint, right? There's two ways you can get charged in the federal system by complaint or by indictment. Uh, complaint is just you write up the affidavit, you and the prosecutor, and then you go in front of a judge. The judge reviews it for probable cause. If they 
find there's probable cause, they sign an arrest warrant. You go out and arrest the person, you bring them in. They are, of course, in the federal system, you're, you're arraigned the day that you're arrested. And at the arraignment, they set a date. You must be indicted by, I think it's two weeks after you've been arraigned. Yeah. Thir- uh, well, 30 days, 30 days I think. I've, well, I've heard, yeah. Whatever. You can also waive arraignment at the indictment, which many people do. So my guess, and it's total guess, what happened here was, I would think they got a, they secured an arrest warrant based on a complaint. And then for whatever reason, they never executed it. It could be just they didn't get around to it. It could be that he left the area because we know that he moved to Georgia at some point in this uh, following that interaction. So if he goes to Georgia, it's not a big deal. It's not a very high priority thing that they're working on. Um, I think it's a misdemeanor in in the a misdemeanor they, warrant. They put it in a misdemeanor warrant. Yeah. yeah so they're they're not going to like, you know, send out a SWAT team from the Atlanta FBI office to find this guy and drag him in, get him arraigned in federal court, extradited to to Maryland. You know, a la 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 la, because they had other things to do, obviously. So he's just in Georgia, and there's this existing federal arrest warrant. He probably doesn't have any other interactions with police. If Had he been, like, pulled over for speeding at that time when the cops run your name through NCIC, they would have seen the outstanding warrant and taken him to jail. In this case, that probably happened when he went in and surrendered on the Fulton County uh, uh, case, and that's why he ended up getting held. Um so because he's never really been processed in the federal system on that arrest warrant, it's probably still just an outstanding warrant. Um, that's why you're not really seeing anything on a docket because the case isn't really started yet in court because mm. he's never been in there. Got it. All right. Well, we'll keep our eye on it for you for sure. Um, all right. It's time to uh, head down to Florida, but we need to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. All right, let's head down to Florida for some news that went under the radar this week. Last week, we talked about the Garcia hearings or conflict of interest hearings from Jack Smith for both Stanley Woodward and John Irving. You'll recall that Woodward represented Tavares and is still representing Nauta. 
And we also discussed a pleading that Jack Smith filed outlining the details of why there's a glaring conflict of interest, including that Tavares changed his testimony as soon as he removed Woodward as his counsel and accepted a public defender. Well, Woodward responded to that filing, complaining that Jack Smith publicly discussed things from a sealed hearing in D.C. without permission. Can you believe it, A.G.? Jack Smith violating the rules just like that for no reason. What a dick. Like, I can't even believe Jack Smith. I mean, you know, he's so sloppy um, (laughs) that it's, you know, I wasn't surprised that he just pulled this, you know, grand jury uh, information, uh, like unsealed it and just put it up on the public docket. Um, First of all, Jack Smith tried to file this under seal in Judge Cannon's court, and she Mm -hmm. denied that. Mm Mm-hmm. Then Jack Smith responded to Woodward's complaint saying, dude, I got, I made a request to disclose and I got permission and here it is, blah, blah, blah. This is from Judge Boesberg, right? Because this particular hearing, initially conflict of interest hearing happened up with Judge Boesberg. That's when Judge Boesberg said, I am appointing a public defender. And that's when Tavares changed his testimony. Yeah. And so Jack's like, yeah, no, I got permission. You weirdo. Who do you think I am? Like, what are you, what are <laughs> you think you I'm Rudy? <laughs> yeah. This is not, this is not special counsel Giuliani, okay? <laughs> Can you imagine? That might happen. Please vote, everyone. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he showed the receipts, um, and uh, that was the end of that. But then, by the way, in this filing that Woodward made, this complaint that, you know, Jack Smith just did this, he, without permission... He disclosed that Trump PAC money went to pay for his representation of Tavares. Uh, so that nice. that's fun. This is classic because it's like it's so similar to the prior complaint that they levied about Jack Smith <laughs> saying, hey, look, he tried to schedule jury selection in the D.C. case for the same day that there's a hearing in Florida, a big conflict of a whole day. And, you know, and now here we have another completely hollow complaint. You just wonder, like, any rational judge with a lot of experience having dealt with whiny complaining lawyers all day would see this stuff for what it is. Like, this is nonsense. Stop complaining to me. Just kind of, like, blow it off. But you really got to wonder if uh, Aileen, Judge Aileen Cannon sees it that way. That, that's, that, that's a harder one to tell. Yeah, and and we'll soon know. We haven't got a ruling on these Garcia hearings uh, yet, but, you know, of course, we will keep you posted uh, when they do happen. And something else interesting that happened that I haven't seen reported anywhere. I had to go dig this up off the docket. But Carlos, Carlos de la Vera, who is uh, superseded with Trump and Nauta for their conspiracy to delete security footage, right, with Tavares. Right. Yep. That's the superseding indictment down here. He has filed for a speedy trial. He wants to begin in October. Uh, and this is interesting to me because we know down in Georgia, Cheese Bro and, and Sydney, uh, Cheese and Kraken, as we call them, <laughs> have, uh, have filed for speedy trials uh, along with a few other people. And maybe to break it up, make it more difficult uh, than to present your case all at once. Uh, but uh, he that he's asking for this uh, speedy trial uh, where Trump does not want a speedy trial. The rest of the trial is set to go May, right? Because mm-hmm. these the, the classified documents case and the superseding indictment for this obstruction are all in the same case. Uh, and this isn't a motion to sever either. So it's I, I don't know. What do you make of this? Really interesting and kind of fascinating that no one else picked up on it. So major props to the to the person that brought it to our attention. Um, you know, on, on its surface, it seems like maybe this is a sign of a little bit of splintering between De Oliveira and Trump, right? Because it's a going, having a speedy trial is clearly not in the interest of the Trump defense team. They want to slow everything down. So De Oliveira coming in and dropping this little bomb, um, certainly doesn't seem consistent with that, but you know, it's a house of mirrors. So you have to look at everything from every side and maybe this is intentional. And maybe the, I think it, yeah, the Trump team Trump's likes favor. the idea that De Oliveira maybe gets severed and goes first on his own. They get a preview of the evidence. They get a preview of some of the government's witnesses, that sort of thing. Um, interestingly, 
It's a little bit different than the Georgia case because in Georgia, the state law is very absolute on this issue of speedy trial. If you request it, I think the state law is that you have to be put on trial before the expiration of the next quote unquote court session. The court sessions are about are generally about every two months. So the prosecutor and the judge don't really have much discretion as to, you know, once the, the defendant uh, claims speedy trial under Georgia state law, it has to go by this accelerated date. I don't believe that it's quite as absolute in the federal system. I think the judge still has a fair amount of discretion to balance the interests of the other defendants and ultimately uh, to serve the interests of justice in the trial. So we'll have to see how this goes. It could provoke some sort of a severance of De Oliveira, maybe even De Oliveira and Nada. Um, further complicated by the fact that they're all represented by the same two guys, it seems. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's what love to be a fly on the wall in those joint defense meetings or phone calls, but some there's something afoot here. Yeah. And, you know, Jack Smith could argue, file an argument the, against this uh, speedy trial um, saying, hey, this is a superseding indictment on a SEPA case. We don't have time to get to this. Uh, or, you know, maybe the judge Cannon decides to sever the superseding indictment from the main indictment, which would have no SEPA considerations and could go faster. But then Jack could argue, well, then they all have to go at once. Right. And so, I mean, we'll see how this we'll see how this ends up. But I mean, it, it would be interesting to see Jack Smith argue against a speedy trial when he's arguing for it. <laughs> yeah. Elsewhere. Um but uh, I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to tell what uh, what Jack Smith is going to do in this particular instance. Yeah, we're going to have to watch this one closely. Yep, and we definitely, definitely will. All right, we've got to address some concerns about uh, Republicans who want to defund the investigations Uh-oh. and investigate the investigators. <laughs> yeah, I'm super scared, shaking in my boots. <laughs> Because uh, this has been so successful in all of the other going back to Mueller investigations. Yeah, it's uh, worked we in. To- um, well, it worked in. Uh, or wait, oh, that's right. It didn't work any of them. Nope, yep. It <laughs> hasn't work worked anywhere. yet ever. But, okay. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about this early on in the show, but we just want to reiterate it. And Shalil Kapoor has put out a piece to remind us for NBC. And uh, we want to talk about it, but we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. 
There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Since there are growing concerns again about a possible government shutdown, thank you, Republicans, I thought it would be a good time to remind everyone, as we did in one of the first episodes of this podcast, how difficult it would be, if not impossible, to shut down the special counsel investigations. As a matter of fact, a government shutdown would not halt the criminal proceedings against the former president. Again, as I said, this is from Shalil Kapoor at NBC. Trump's indictments in New York and Georgia would not be affected by a government shutdown, while his federal indictments are criminal matters that have been exempted from shutdowns in the past. The Justice Department said in a 2021 memo that during a shutdown, quote, criminal litigation will continue without interruption as an activity essential to the safety of human life and the protection of property. That's the Justice Department's plan, and it assumes that the judicial branch remains fully operational, which it has said in the past can carry on for weeks in the event of a funding lapse. And as I have said, breathlessly since the Mueller probe, <laughs> and again at the beginning of this podcast, Special Counsel Jack Smith's office is funded by a permanent indefinite appropriation for independent counsels from the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And uh, that's what it's said in a statement of its expenditures. Given its separate funding source, Special Counsel would not be affected by a shutdown and could run off all allocations from previous years. Um, so this, uh, let's see, we've got... Uh, Rep. Andrew Clyde, Republican from Georgia, Trump ally. He's on the Appropriations Committee, and he said Monday he will introduce two amendments to eliminate federal funding for all three of Trump's prosecutions, Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, and D.A. Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. Matt Gates has said he's pushing to cut off funding for Jack Smith specifically, and House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan is publicly calling for party leaders to insert provisions into government funding legislation that changes how the Justice Department can use money. So he probably wants to stop that fully funded U.S. Treasury yeah. thing from even from even existing. Now, you're going to have to get it past shit like that. You got to get past the Senate and you got to get Biden to sign it. So, no, that's not happening. No, not at all. And, you know, that uh, that standard that you uh, reference, so activity essential to the safety of human life and the protection of property, that's the standard that. I assume the whole government, but my experience is only within FBI and DOJ, but it's the standard they used to determine essential personnel, people who have to continue coming to work even if there's a full government shutdown. And you're not getting paid during that period, but you still have to come in uh, and do your job. And so folks on the kind of criminal side of the house, investigators, people who are essential to the continued investigation and prosecution of criminal cases, they are all always declared essential personnel and they keep coming to work. Um, yeah. And also if you shut them down or shut down the judges, you are infringing on speedy trial rights. I mean, like it, there's also, it, it's in deference to criminal defendants and their rights as well. That's right. That's right. So I, when I worked at the VA, we what we we were going to shut down hospitals. No, yeah. we're we're considered essential, and exactly. so we we weren't furloughed for that time. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I, I I don't think we have too much to worry about here. Yep. Nope. Nobody worry. And uh, I know this isn't part of our purview, but uh, the the Fonnie Willis new Georgia law where they can have a commission to have her impeached or removed as the DA. We now have the Speaker of the House, Republican. We now have Governor Brian Kemp. We have like multiple high-level, high-ranking Republicans in the state saying that's not going to happen. It's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. So it, it, they might yell and scream and try. Um, like Matt Gates could probably put forth a resolution. It's not going to go anywhere. Same with Georgia. So I, I wouldn't concern myself too much with these um, little bits of fear uh, that are out there to elicit your... Uh, emotional response that make you the angry. Sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes, life is go. a tale, and told by a drunk Rudy. <laughs> Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. All right, listener questions. All um, right, what uh, what do we have this week? We have a really interesting one uh, from Rob, who sends in from Cornwall, UK. And Rob says, "Hi, Allison and Andy. Thanks for a fascinating podcast. Really enjoying it here in the UK." My question. As Trump's counsel Lauro declared in court to Judge Chutkin that a March trial date means he cannot represent his client properly, what is to stop Trump from waiting until mid-February and then sacking his defense team citing this declaration? Wouldn't this mean a de facto trial delay of many months? Is there anything the judge can do in this scenario? And if not, 
What's to stop Trump from just doing this again, approaching any new trial date? Cheers. That's such a good question. It is a good question. And uh, on its face, it seems like it would be a great strategy for delay. (laughs) So you could just count on the fact that this will happen at some point. But someone's thought of it before. And That's so right. there are protections. In That's place. right. Even even for someone like Trump, who so quickly hires and fires lawyers like right and left. So what would happen in this case if Trump tries to fire Lauro uh, in any period, you know, running right up to the trial date? Lauro would need to get leave of court or permission of the judge to actually stop representing Trump, and then. Trump would have to add additional counsel. So that's how that would have to work. So that what would likely happen is the judge would not permit Lauro to leave. Now, Trump can say, Lauro, you're fired. I don't like you anymore. But it's very different from the judge's perspective. She can require Lauro to continue to represent Trump. Now, what she would probably do, I think, in this uh, under these circumstances she would deny Lauro's request to, to terminate his representation of Trump, but she would probably also allow Trump to bring on another attorney if there was some other attorney that he preferred in that moment. Maybe probably she would probably give that attorney some very minimal period uh, to come up to speed on the case, realizing that he doesn't have, it's not quite as hard to come up to speed because Lauro is still there helping him call the shots. So yeah, you would probably get a minimal delay out of it, but it's unlikely uh, that it would be used successfully to delay the the trial for months and months and months. Either way, the strategy is really designed to create an issue on appeal. Trump wants to be able to go back after he's convicted, uh, convicted excuse me, go to the appellate court and say, I was denied my preferred counsel. Um, the counsel I had was insufficient, so I had an ineffective assistance of counsel uh, appeal. And he wants to just layer in as many of these arguments on appeal to fight any sort of conviction he might get stuck with. Uh, and that would these these would certainly add to that list, um, but probably they'd be unlikely to succeed. Yeah, and we already know that this team is making considerations for appeal um, and sort of operating under the assumption that (laughs) that Trump is probably going to be convicted in this case, because we talked about them, um, you know, wanting to uh, talk, you know, refer to the Electoral Count Act as ambiguous and vague, much like the the Ken McDonald case that that Jack Smith brought that was overturned by the Supreme Court because they, they found that the corruption statute for bribery was vague and overbroad and weird and now you can't prosecute anybody for bribery because of that um (laughs) but uh thank you that you know they i really truly think that they are really sort of lining their ducks up for for appeals here and that's why he went on the record at the end of that sentencing hearing to say you are infringing on his sixth amendment right you are doing this you are making defense impossible um, and that's well, because, you know, why this question was sent in. So really good yeah, question. Great question. And it really, you got to get back to the fact that Trump's defense strategy in this case is a political strategy. So that's why the emphasis on delay. So even he's figuring, okay, if the tri- I don't want the trial to go before the election, but even if it does go before the election, and if I get convicted, I'll stack up reams and reams of issues on appeal. And that will take a long time. And, by, and before that can be resolved, I'll run for president in 2024 and win. And once I win, I will either pardon myself or I'll have DOJ drop all existing or charges or, you know, just, uh, or they won't oppose any of my appeals or what have you. And just to try to eviscerate the conviction uh, retrospectively, that's his strategy. Um, so that's why you're going to constantly see every little opportunity to take a day, to take an hour, to take a week back out of the calendar. Every little delay is a victory for them. Yeah, 100%. All right, we have a new way to submit questions to our show. Uh, I believe there is a link in the show notes for a form that you can fill out. So if you have a question for us, please use that link to send us your questions. We appreciate that. We were, we were losing too many, even with the Jack in the subject line. Um, it was getting, uh, sometimes people put other things in the subject line and we're getting filtered out. 
Um, so, and then we would also, you know, have 800 million other emails with the word Jack in them somewhere. <laughs> like, so we have a form to, for you to fill out and the link will be in the show notes. So we appreciate your questions. Thank you so much for sending them in. Um, I, everybody felt like it was a quiet week in Jack Smithland, uh, but we ended up with another hour long show, my friend. There you go. Every time it's going to keep happening again and again. We're 40 weeks into this and I uh, feel like we're just getting started. Absolutely. All right, everybody. We will see you next week. Uh, it's been wonderful. Good to see you again, Andy. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.